Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We've got a great show for you today, and this has been a show that I have been promising to you for weeks now. And we've finally pulled it together. I finally found myself an expert to tell you all about Bitcoin. His name is Nick Weaver, and you may remember him. He was back on the show last year. And uh, he's a security researcher from Berkeley, and he knows all about Bitcoin, inside and out, all the technical details, and we're going to try to explain it all to you, but you better strap in, folks. Buckle up. It's going to be quite the ride. Uh, Hang in there with us, though. There's some really great info in here and some good advice toward the end. Should you get in? Should you invest all your money? Should you mortgage your home to the hilt and put it all in Bitcoin? Uh, I don't want to spoil it. We'll listen up, and we'll tell you all about it. And without further ado, let's talk about Bitcoin with Nick Weaver. Nick Weaver is a security researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and a computer science lecturer at Berkeley. Uh, Nick was on the show earlier last summer when we talked about WannaCry back in the day. It seems like forever ago. Uh, But today I've asked him to come on and explain Bitcoin to us mere mortals. Welcome. Thank you very much. Great to have you back. So, you know, I I know you've it's been all over the news and that's I've been telling the audience for a long time. I wanted to bring somebody on. Thank you very much for coming. Um, and we, you know, it's it skyrocketed. So just so you know, for the audience's sake, uh, it started out at about a thousand bucks of Bitcoin in January, which is actually at the time seemed pretty high. Uh, but it peaked around $20,000 of Bitcoin just a few weeks ago, which of course got it all over the news. And most of that growth was just in since September, just kind of had this bubble and everybody thought, okay, now it popped and it, it did drop off and it went all the way down to 12 and a half thousand. And, but it's back to 17,000 as of last week. So you know, I don't know, but anyway, that's why it's been all that's why it's been all over the news because this thing has gone up a thousand percent or whatever in a year, uh, and so it's been quite the rage. And uh, so it's long since time that we talked about it. So I know you have a lot of personal opinions on this, and I can't wait to hear those. But we've got to start with just the basics because I know it's so confusing. People just like, what the hell is a Bitcoin? So let, let's start. Let's start at the at the basic question: What is Bitcoin? So technically, it's a distributed ledger system. A better way to think about it is, let's suppose we want to reinvent the banking system, and we don't trust anybody, but we have these checks. So I can write you a check, sign it, and send it to you. And okay, now in the conventional banking system, what happens is you're receiving bank and my sending bank get together, transfer the money, and it's all good. But the Bitcoin model is... Instead, what happens is all the checks are taken together, all the checks written in, say, 10 minutes are taken together and basically engraved into a stone tablet. (laughs) And that stone tablet has a pointer to the previous 10 minutes stone tablet. And this just keeps going on. And so in order for me to find out my bank balance, I basically start at the beginning of history, look at all transfers into my account all transfers out of my account, and that's my balance. And so when I write a check to you, the people engraving the check into the stone tablet basically do that calculation. They see if that is a valid check. If so, they start to engrave it into the tablets. And if not, it's rejected. So, okay, so there is something, something out there, that does this validation, but it's not centralized. So how does how does that work? So how do how do I validate something if there's no central authority? So what happens is basically the process of creating the stone tablet uses what's called proof of work. So we have these things called cryptographic hash functions that turn things into random strings of bits. 
And so if I say foobar and hash it, I get a random string of bits. And every time I say foobar hash it, I get the same random string of bits. But if I just so much as change a single character in what I'm hashing, the output looks completely different. And so what it is, is the stone tablet, or in Bitcoin parlance, the block, has a pointer to the previous block, has a list of all the valid transactions that are going to be accepted, and then a bit of random space where the miner can just tweak stuff. And so what the miner does is he tweaks that, hashes the block, tweaks it, hashes the block. And when the hash of the block is below some threshold, the difficulty, then it's published to the world. And faking this requires at least as much effort as the entire world has already spent. This is the proof of work. And the better way of thinking of proof of work is proof of waste. So it's <laughs> basically in creating this hash match, this hash partial collision, the world is expected to do at least so much wasted effort in calculating hash, discarding it, calculating hash, discarding it, calculating hash, discarding it, that in order to get a calculate the hash then match, it takes a huge amount of effort. And then since each block points to the previous block, if I want to say rewrite the last hour of history, I have to do the same amount of work that the entire world did in order to rewrite history and say, oh, this transaction never happened. So to kind of paraphrase that, the way I've often heard it explained uh, to me in, in sort of layman's terms is that it's 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 about puzzle solving and it, it, and you throw computers at it and, and there's a built-in scarcity model. The guy who invented this, we'll talk, we'll talk about him in a minute because it's fascinating. Came up with this this idea that you that you have some puzzle that becomes progressively harder to solve. So, like in the early days, you talked about mining, for example, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute too. But you create you can create these bitcoins. You can also buy and sell them. But in the early days, someone had to make them, right? That so to in order to make them, there's this progressively more difficult puzzle that you have to solve, which makes it has a sort of like a built-in scarcity model for the so to prevent, I guess, inflation, which is kind of clever, but. Um, and and then uh, from what you're saying is, so you know if I'm trying to create bitcoins myself, if I'm trying to mine a bitcoin. I, I solve this puzzle. I I've, you know I throw a lot of effort at it, and when I come up with a, a winning uh, something that solves the puzzle, then I publish that, and now I have some bitcoins. Something like that. Sort of. So each block has a group of transactions in it. The transactions that the miners say is valid. The first transaction is special. It says pay the miner the block reward and all the transaction fees. And the block reward has this fixed schedule. It first was 50 Bitcoins a block, then it was 25, and now it's 12.5. And the difficulty is independent. The, difficult, the probability of succeeding in getting a block self-tunes to be about once every 10 minutes. So the rate of Bitcoin creation is on this fixed schedule as long as enough people are wasting enough power. <laughs> so as an average layman, can I mine Bitcoin? Can I just go to my computer, no. go to my laptop? It used to be the case, correct? Why is that no longer the it case? It used to be the case. The, the thing is, however, is 
this actually centralizes. So what happened is in the old days, you could just use your PC or graphics card. But people very quickly realized you could use FPGAs and then ASICs. And so what happens is mining centralizes into a few groups that buy basically build and develop custom computer chips to do this mining, set up in China mostly where the power is cheap. And so as a result, what happens is that block reward becomes a red queen's race that effectively, as long as there's more potential profit to be made, you get more miners coming in to the point where basically nobody makes any money anymore and all their money goes to power bills. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that at this point, it's it, it costs more money and electricity to do the computing required to create Bitcoin than it does the value of the coin, even though the price has gone up so much. Uh, No. It would be if you were using normal computer chip or normal computers, but these groups are basically using custom ASICs, so a lot more power efficient, and at the same time um, using uh, Chinese, and I think there's one group in Iceland where the power is cheap and subsidized. And so what a good rule of thumb is, is the power consumption for for Bitcoin, take the current Bitcoin price, say it's at $10,000. Generally, when the price is stable, the power consumption of Bitcoin is every 10 minutes, you get 12 and a half Bitcoins. So that's at $10,000, that's $120,000 of new Bitcoin created. And about half of that goes to power bills. So there's basically the Bitcoin network. A good rule of thumb is it probably costs around $60,000 every 10 minutes in power bill. <laughs> wow. So you're talking about ASICs and FPGAs. So for those who don't know, those are custom silicon. That's basically custom chips uh, that can be either through software programming or through by building them are custom made to do certain th certain particular things. In this case, mine Bitcoin. Yep. Um, the other thing I've noticed is that if you've ever tried to buy a really nice graphics card for your PC, uh, I, I've heard, I don't know if this is true, that some of the models are actually really hard to get, like they're out of stock because there are so many Bitcoin miners buying dozens of these things off the market as soon as they're available to slam into some big box to try to mine Bitcoin. Is that true or is that just an urban legend? Uh, it's slightly different. It used to be true. And now instead, it's um, people buying it for Ethereum. Mm -hmm. So Ethereum is another cryptocurrency, which we will get into later. But its proof of waste algorithm is a different hash function that requires a lot of memory as well. So the advantage of using ASICs is less. Sure. So if I can't really mine it, if it's not really practical for a regular person to mine it, uh, how, you know, let's say for some reason, and I'm sure you'll, <laughs> you're going to laugh at the question. Let's say I want to invest in Bitcoin. Let's say I want to buy some Bitcoin, either because I want to, maybe I want to actually purchase something with it. And we'll, uh, and we'll talk about that in a second. But if, if I wanted to buy Bitcoin, if I want to invest in Bitcoin, how does, how do I even do that? Like, where do I go to buy Bitcoin? First of all, Bitcoin is not an investment. Bitcoin is purely speculation, and its only value is somebody else 
will use it for something. So a lot of people advocate Bitcoin because it's censorship resistant. So the government can't come and take away your Bitcoin. Um, if that's your threat model, invest in gold and 223 ammunition. It's far more cost effective. <laughs> but let's actually go through what it really actually takes to buy Bitcoin. Yes, please. Now, Bitcoin itself is irreversible. One of the tenets of the community behind Bitcoin is there should be no undo button and no central authority that either can block transactions or roll back transactions. This is taken as an article of faith in that community that it's a good thing. We'll get to later why I strongly disagree. <laughs> but this means that Bitcoin is actually fundamentally incompatible with modern finance. So if I want to actually buy Bitcoin, everything electronic in the modern financial system is reversible at least for a few hours. And this is simply to prevent fraud, that if you have irreversibility, you can only prevent fraud. But if you have reversibility, you can actually mitigate fraud by going, oops, something bad has happened and go backwards. And it's a lot easier a life when you can do mitigation and response than just prevention. We'll get to, again, why that's a problem <laughs> with Bitcoin later. So this means that you can't just buy Bitcoin with a credit card. You can't just do a bank transfer to buy Bitcoin. So there are two good ways for you as a person to buy a Bitcoin. The first is local Bitcoins, where you go onto this website, find some skeevy person someplace, <laughs> and you either deposit cash into his bank account and hope he gives you the money, or meet in person, give him the cash, he gives you the Bitcoin. And in either case, uh, when somebody, Bitcoin is irreversible, but only after 10 minutes. You can't just transfer the Bitcoin and walk away. You have to wait for that transaction to be confirmed. And a few years ago or six months ago, that would take 10 minutes. These days, if you want your transaction to confirm in 10 minutes, you're going to have to spend about 20 to $30 in transaction fees to the Bitcoin network for that to happen. We'll get into why that is later <laughs> as well. So... Option one, skeevy face-to-face -face deal. <laughs> okay. Option two is Coinbase. So Coinbase is about the only Bitcoin exchange that has gone through the efforts to comply with U.S. law. And so in order to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase, you set up a Coinbase account. Easy peasy. You register your bank account. Easy peasy. Coinbase is annoying, wants you to send copies of your photo ID and everything else so that they know you're not some drug-dealing money launderer. <laughs> easy peasy. You transfer the money from your bank account to Coinbase. Easy peasy. And then Coinbase sits on it for a week. <laughs> and Coinbase has to sit on it for a week because otherwise what would happen is some skeevy person would create an account compromise somebody else's bank account, transfer the money to Bitcoin, or transfer the money to Coinbase, 
take that money, turn it into Bitcoin, take the Bitcoin and run, and then Coinbase is stuck holding the bill when the fraud is discovered. Mm, okay. Um, and so as a result, if you want to buy Bitcoin quickly without having a long-term pre-established business relationship with – so after you go through these hoops on Coinbase and have bought a bunch of Bitcoin, you can buy Bitcoin quickly in the future because basically Bitcoin's extend or uh, because Coinbase is extending you credit. But if you want to buy Bitcoin quickly the first time, it takes a cash step. And this actually is a problem, is Bitcoin as a currency. So let's assume for the moment that Bitcoin transactions are free. That it's not the case right now, but let's assume that it was. Okay. It was in the past. If I actually want to buy something with Bitcoin, say drugs, <laughs> I have to turn my dollars into Bitcoin transfer the Bitcoin, and then the recipient doesn't want Bitcoin. The recipient wants actual money. So what the recipient has to do is turn that uh, Bitcoin back into dollars. And this means that because we have these two transaction steps, dollars to Bitcoin, Bitcoin to dollar, and because the recipient goes Bitcoin to dollar, I have to have gone dollar to Bitcoin the system balance what ends up happening is the real cost of buying something with bitcoin ends up being dollars to bitcoin three percent easy often five percent or more the bitcoin transaction in the past effectively free now 30 bucks and then the uh bitcoin back to dollars which would be another one percent two percent three percent and so as long as you're talking a transaction where you can use a credit card, a credit card is actually vastly cheaper. <laughs> so this means that Bitcoin is only superior for real-world transactions, actually buying stuff, if that stuff can't be bought with a credit card. So basically, drugs and ransoms. Well, Ransom, that's the point I was about to bring up is because uh, one of the places where Bitcoin became popular last year was in payments for ransomware. So somebody in ransomware also was extremely popular last year. Uh, so you go to your computer and you get this pop up saying, oh, hey, sorry, I've encrypted all your files. Pay me, you know, so many Bitcoin or some fractions of a Bitcoin to get your, you know, get your files back. And usually had, you know, some limited amount of time. You might have, you know, two or three days in which to do this. Um so that would force a lot of regular everyday people to suddenly figure out where I go to buy Bitcoin. It sounds like in that case, their only option would be the local skeevy option. Yep. And in fact, this is we actually almost had a ransomware explosion about three to four years ago. So three to four years ago, the first large wave of ransomware hit. And at the time, you could pay your ransom either in Bitcoin or in Green Dot Money Pack. So Green Dot is this prepaid credit card system where you can load up remote cards, etc. And there was uh, basically criminal networks in Europe that would cash this out. So to pay your ransom, you either get the Bitcoin, ouch, annoying, or you go down to 7-Eleven, buy a Green Dot money pack, send that number, and then the criminals cash it out. And 
Although the criminals offered both payment mechanisms, Green Dot was so much more popular for them. Unfortunately, the, for uh, the criminals, fortunately for everybody else, the U.S. Treasury doesn't like money laundering. <laughs> so the uh, U.S. Treasury said, hey, Green Dot, crack down on this money laundering problem. And now when you register a Green Dot card, you have to give all this information. You have to give your name, your social security number, et cetera, et cetera, before you can use it at all. So it's no longer effective for these criminal transactions. It died out a bit, and then it popped up again, Bitcoin only, as you had these, uh, these uh, developed kits come out. But the ransomware guys hate Bitcoin. And I think the reason why ransomware is starting to retreat again is that the Bitcoin network has literally shut down out of unusability. So remember how I said the miners every 10 minutes take all the transactions, staple them together, put them in a block, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Each block is limited to one megabyte of total information. And this means that in practice, the Bitcoin network can only support about Oh, three transactions per second for the entire world. Hmm. And what happens is when you're below that threshold of three transactions per second globally, the transaction fees are effectively zero. You pay a token amount like five cents or something, and the miners happily accept it. As soon as the block gets full, you basically end up having an auction process going on for this very limited global capacity. And so starting a couple years ago, some jokers would be stress testing the Bitcoin network. So they'd just do a whole bunch of garbage spam transactions that were just slightly more expensive than sort of the median transaction and people would experience delays. Now there is just enough global interest in Bitcoin that that just occurs organically. Hmm. And so as a result, what has happened is median transaction fees. So the median fee to do a Bitcoin transaction is over $20. And unless Bitcoin stops being used by anybody, and it's being used by speculators who have to transfer the Bitcoin back and forth, because rule number one of Bitcoin don't let anybody else hold your Bitcoin because if they get stolen, you lose your money. So if you're a speculator who buys, say, $500 worth of Bitcoin, you cannot escape it safely on a Bitcoin exchange. You have to transfer that Bitcoin to yourself. The system is just basically ground to a halt. Hmm. So you brought up another aspect of this when you're talking about the money laundering part. And one of the one of the other things that is commonly brought up with Bitcoin is that it's, quote unquote, anonymous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so explain. So if you my understanding and please feel free to laugh in my face again, is that is that if I if I stay strictly within the Bitcoin system, let's say I managed to somehow mine it. So I didn't have to go to exchange to buy it. So I, I, I created it on my own. If I stayed within the Bitcoin system, there's probably nothing to, you know, well, other short of the NSA, maybe there's no real way to tie me directly to my Bitcoin. But if, as soon as I go through any kind of exchange, as soon as I do any kind of conversion, whatever that 
whatever that exchange or bank or whatever it is that's doing the conversion is going to want to know all about me, right? So at that point, it becomes not anonymous. But if I if I were to stay completely within the realm of Bitcoin, if I mined my own and traded it just for Bitcoin, <laughs> is that still anonymous? Okay, yeah. I'm going to guess no, but please explain why. So Bitcoin is actually not anonymous. Bitcoin's idea is pseudonymous. So each Bitcoin um, wallet is a effectively random public-private key pair. And that's a pseudonym. So there, I have a Bitcoin wallet that starts out with one F-U-C-K-B-T-C and then a whole <laughs> bunch of random digits. Now... From the point of view of the general Bitcoin blockchain, yeah, it's a pseudonym. But you can tie that pseudonym to other accounts easily through uh, various heuristics. And as importantly, if you ever catch my wallet file, well, all is lost because that has all the history. Right. So let's tell the tale of the dread pirate Ulbricht. Mm, yes. Ross Ulbricht had a vision. He had a libertarian vision that anybody should be able to buy drugs and other stuff online using Bitcoin. He also had the libertarian ideal that he should be able to uh, hire hitmen to dispatch with those who <laughs> disrupted his market. But fortunately, he wasn't very competent at that and never actually succeeded in anything other than spending lots of money. So he was arrested. And during the arrest process, the FBI captured two things. They captured the Silk Road server, which was the marketplace itself. And they also captured his personal computer. And poor Ross Ulbricht, he messed up. <laughs> he kept notes on his criminal conspiracy. But also on that, computer was his Bitcoin wallet, his personal Bitcoin. <laughs> and so you had two Bitcoin wallets in question. You had the Silk Road stash on the Silk Road server, and you had Ross Ulbricht's uh, stash on his own personal computer. Now, the defense attorney was, uh, let me put it politely, an effing idiot in the case. <laughs> and one of his particular idiocies was during his opening statement, well, how do you explain the millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin on the defendant's computer? Well, the defendant was a Bitcoin trader and Bitcoin miner from years back. Um, unfortunately, there was a minor problem with this. You see, all those coins got seized by the FBI. And so the Silk Road coins were seized into one FBI wallet, and Ross Ulbricht's coins were seized into another FBI wallet, which meant it was a simple matter with just that public information for me to go, oh, here's the Silk Road wallets as of the seizure. Here's Ross Ulbricht's wallets as of the seizure. At least 40% of Ross Ulbricht's uh, Bitcoin came directly from the Silk Road. <laughs> Uh, here's another 60 per, or 50% plus that looks like it probably came from the Silk Road. And that's all fine and good with public information. 
Unfortunately for the defense, with the wallet files, you could see all Ross Ulbricht's previous transactions. And so the prosecution went, oh, here's a last-minute expert. Um, here's all the money going from Silk Road to Ross Ulbricht's personal wallet, namely all of it. Oh, and here's the money going from Ross Ulbricht to the fake hitman that was uh, scamming him. <laughs> right. So basically, yeah. So it's anonymous until someone figures out someone figures out what maps your basically your username to you. Right. As soon as as soon as that's done, yeah. it's, it's game over. And, it, it, that's, and that's why it's pseudonymous. Right. And it's and that history, as you said, with the blockchain is it's globally known every place once i know your your wallet id or your user id i know every bitcoin you've ever spent because it's this this yep. ledger is kept worldwide and even if you're careful and use a new key for each uh transaction so it looks like you've got a gazillion different wallets if i seize your computer i get the file on your computer that has all your previous wallets because you might have Bitcoin still come into them. And so you have to keep those keys around. And so the quip is Bitcoin is prosecution futures. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, so let me talk a little bit about the history because I think it's kind of fascinating. So uh, Bitcoin was, you know, generated somewhere around 2008, I think is when the white paper came out uh, from this guy named Satoshi Nakamoto. And, there's been so much legend around this guy or people because we don't know it's some it's, uh, I've heard a lot of people speculate. It's really a pseudonym for a group of people. This guy supposedly has a, the, the first million Bitcoins, which, of course, if you do the math, makes this guy multi-billionaire on paper. Um, but no, he's never he's never cashed out a single one. Uh, they're all still out there somewhere and never heard a peep from this guy. So what, what is the history? What, who is this guy? Who are these people? Do we know anything about them whatsoever? Not really. Um, the cryptographic engineering is interesting, but it does have some quirks. Um, so, like, there's some double hashing and other little weirdnesses that are unusual. Um, and to be honest, I don't like to speculate on the identity, but I would like to point out that if the person or group responsible wants to prove they are, it's easy. So anybody who claims they are Satoshi Nakamoto is basically BSing unless they do a trivial cryptographic proof, but they can do a trivial cryptographic proof. They just take one of the early Bitcoins and spend it. Right. So it, it, is there you mentioned this before too is there any governing body whatsoever and the reason one of the reasons i ask it's a, it's part of the reason that people uh like the idea of bitcoin is that as you said earlier uh there's no control there's no central bank there's no government that is that can control or shut down or or influence this currency this currency in fact in, in countries like venezuela apparently they're using bitcoin because their own currency is so inflationary that they no, need they're some not they're using dollars Aren't some of them using Bitcoin as well? Though? Very little. That um, The problem is, is Bitcoin is not a good currency for real-world use. It takes 30 bucks to do a transfer. Sure. Do you realize what 30 bucks is worth in Venezuela right now? Yeah. Um, so this is a particular libertarian mindset. Um, so 
this is something that is built into Bitcoin that's not actually true. So Bitcoin actually is controlled by a very small cabal of those centralized miners. So there's basically three or four people who can get together and rewrite the rules. And so although Bitcoin and all these other cryptocurrencies have this model, this mantra that there's no controlling authority, no ability to take back, etc., that's also a delusion. So I earlier mentioned Ethereum. Ethereum is an interesting cryptocurrency because it has this idea of smart contracts. Smart contracts being a very dumb idea, but anyway. <laughs> so there was this smart contract created around 18 months ago called the DAO, D-A-O, um, Distributed Autonomous uh, Organization. It was supposed to be this sort of vote by mutual fund. So you could put your money in, you could have a vote on what was going on. And this contract went out. 10% of all Ethereum went into it. So on the order of $100 million notional value. Now, the smart contract had a bug in it. And somebody observed that they had this bug in it and basically told, hey, smart contract, give me all the money. Well, was this an act of theft? It was actually following the text of the smart contract. But in a very controversial move, the developers of Ethereum and about 90% of the people doing the mining decided to rewrite history and basically say, oh, that transaction never happened. Everybody gets their money back. Hmm. So this is proof that not only is in theory, there are central cabals in charge of these cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin has a small cabal of miners. Three or four people can get together. Um, but that they actually will even act as central authorities rewriting the rules if uh, it's their money at stake. Is this sort of like a uh, shareholder thing? Like if, if, if you get a, over 50% of the people together, you can kind of make changes? Or like, for example, yeah, effectively. – Bitcoin last year uh, split off and create Bitcoin Cash out of nowhere. And, and that to me says, wait a minute, wait, who, who had the authority to do that if there's no central um, authority? Well, the thing is, is there's sort of distributed central authorities. So the reason why Bitcoin Cash split off is there's this debate on what to do about this block size issue. And the cabal, the main cabal of miners went, oh, we want to keep it as is. And Bitcoin Cash folks wanted to go for larger block sizes. And so they basically said, okay, we're going our own way. But Bitcoin Cash is now a slightly different cabal of a few people that's capable of rewriting the rules. But what ends up happening is the shareholding in question is not the people holding the coins, but the people doing the mining. Hmm. And since there's really only a few groups doing the mining, the net result is there really are only a couple of shareholders that can control Bitcoin. They just choose not to at this time. Interesting. Okay, so... 
let's wrap, the, wrap this up with two questions. So first of all, we've talked, you've already mentioned some of the things you don't like about Bitcoin. Let's, they're on, and we've also mentioned that there are several other types of coin out there. Bitcoin is the one that's uh, hitting the newspapers, but you, you, there's Ethereum, there's Litecoin, there's Dogecoin, there's there's a ton of them out there, and there's probably going to be new ones coming up all the time. Monero is another one uh, that that uh, a lot of the bad guys are using on web web browsers uh, for background mining. So, are there any looking at the, the 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 coins that are out there today? Do you see any of them out there that you think are kind of doing it right? Are there any ones that are worth Thinking these these guys have legs, they're going to go somewhere. And then, after you answer that question, the, the follow up is: If you were doing it from scratch, if there does this make sense at all? Does, can this be salvaged? Is there a way forward for cryptocurrency? Uh, none of the cryptocurrencies make sense to me. It's a tulip bulb mania without the tulips. <laughs> we have cases of things like the Ethereum network basically became unusable for three days because of a collectible card game involving tra- breeding cats. <laughs> um, and uh, so let's look at some of the ones you mentioned. Litecoin. Litecoin is just Bitcoin with a different proof of work. A lot of these alternate cryptocurrencies are simply pump and dump schemes. Some of them just happen to pump up better than others. Um, Lately, we've been hearing these ICOs, initial coin offerings, Mm -hmm. which are basically meta pump and dump schemes on existing blockchains. And basically... The SEC's abdication of regulatory authority is going to cause a lot of people to lose a lot of money. Um, You have Dogecoin, which is Litecoin, but an explicit joke. (laughs) Um, And then you have Ethereum. And Ethereum actually is interesting because... The cryptocurrency is yet another Me Too cryptocurrency, but it has this idea of a smart contract, the notion that you can program up a piece of code that executes a contract. The problem is, is real world contracts are written in code. It's just called legalese. And the cost of a contract in the real world is actually cheap. When I bought my house, there was no massive fee to do the contracting for everything. What the cost was, was title insurance, which is the exception handling mechanism when something goes wrong. And real world contracts have an exception handling mechanism. It's called the judge. (laughs) Smart contracts take the cheap part, the standardization, standardized contracts, rewrite it in a language worse than JavaScript with bugs (laughs) and eliminate the exception handling mechanism. So if a smart contract has a dispute, there's nothing you can do about it. So if, say, a smart contract for a wallet to keep your money has a bug, well, if the money gets stolen or locked up, uh, now what? Um, and a few million dollars worth of Ethereum just got lost this way. Hmm. So smart contracts are an inherently dumb idea. (laughs) There is one possible thing that you could do with a cryptocurrency. Let us call them crypto dollars. I create an institution that will accept U.S. dollars and issue crypto dollars at par, one-to-one. 
and Key will accept crypto dollars and return you dollars one-to-one. Okay. This eliminates the volatility problem. And now once you eliminate the volatility problem, you also end up eliminating the need to constantly go back and forth from dollars to crypto dollars. So you can actually have the system where somebody turns dollars into crypto dollars, the crypto dollars keep circulating, and basically never have to get turned back into dollars. So this can create a stable system. The problem is, is now you're trusting this central authority to convert dollars to crypto dollars and to keep the real dollars. And this has been tried before back in the 18th century. This is a, called a bank, and these are called banknotes. And if you remember your 18th century economic history, <laughs> these banks would often fail and take the gold with them. And so this has actually happened in the cryptocurrency world, and I think it's actually largely responsible for the high price of Bitcoin right now. So Bitcoin's price is really defined by what I call the net influx of new belief. So every 10 minutes, there's 12.5 new Bitcoins that are created. And these Bitcoins need to be sold because about half of that goes to pay power bills <laughs> in the equilibrium case. Now, what has happened is there's this major cryptocurrency exchange called Bitfinex, um, run by a couple of who knows who's out of uh, someplace in Asia. Now, back in May, they got their banking cut off because, well, cryptocurrencies, real, cryptocurrency exchanges really shouldn't get banking access. And as an alternative, they have this independent, but not independent, cryptocurrency called Tether. Now, a Tether is supposed to be tethered one-to-one -one with U.S. dollars. So it's supposed to be for every Tether issued, they're supposed to have a dollar sitting in a bank someplace. This is highly, highly, highly unlikely as in the last three months, they've printed nearly a billion dollars <laughs> worth of tethers that then go on to Bitfinex and a couple other Bitcoin exchanges and are used to buy Bitcoin. Hmm. And so we've got this net influx that accounts for roughly half of the Bitcoin price right now. The, the influx is not people putting in real money but provably people putting in these fake dollars. Wow. And so what happens when people stop believing in Tether and there's actually a bank run? Well, I suspect that the Bitcoin price is going to collapse greatly because the problem is Chinese power companies don't expect Tether. They expect actual money. Sure. And so I suspect that that is going to be really ugly in the next few months, that in the next few months, there's going to be a significant price collapse when the tether is exposed as the fraud I believe it to be. Wow. Well, well, 
that will be interesting to see. And I, I, it's already had some really weird volatility, right? So who knows? Yep. Well, part of the other problem is, is there actually is no such thing as the Bitcoin price. So on a real world exchanges, there's links. So a stock might be traded on three markets, but the three markets are effectively tied together. And if they're not tied together, you can efficiently arbitrage between the three markets so they become tied together. But with Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is both slow to transfer, 10 minutes is actually remarkably slow. Yeah. And expensive to transfer, 30 bucks plus it, or 20 to 30 bucks. What ends up happening is you don't have a single market price. You have these market islands that are all very thinly traded and very volatile. And there's no capability to even safely arbitrage between these to drive the prices together. So the Bitcoin price is a fiction. It's really a composite on these different markets. And Wall Street kind of understands this. So you've heard about Bitcoin futures, right? Sure. They aren't actually Bitcoin futures. They are specifically instead a bet that is paid in actual dollars based on the index price either at one or a group of exchanges, which means they are unlike other futures. That if I have a petroleum future for 100,000 barrels of oil, I sell that, I still have a contract that buys 100,000 barrels of oil. So I actually no longer care about the price of oil. There will be a delivery, and I, as the seller of the future, have basically gotten my money now instead of three months from now. But with Bitcoin futures, because they actually settle in dollars, not Bitcoin, I can't actually safely sell a Bitcoin future. Because if I safely sell a Bitcoin future, I have to be able to, at that time in the future, provide dollars, which means at that time in the future, I have to be able to sell a significant quality of quantity of Bitcoin on an exchange that's thinly traded. And so as a result, Bitcoin futures are not actually really Bitcoin futures. So why are these things cash rather than Bitcoin? It's because it's actually really hard to secure Bitcoin. So securing my dollars in my bank account is easy. I give it to the bank. They take care of it. How do you secure Bitcoin on your computer? Back it up. It's probably the best thing you could do. <laughs> actually, it's the opposite. You can't store it on your computer at all. Because what happens is if your computer ever gets compromised, the thief goes or the, the, the hacker goes, oh, this is a Bitcoin wallet. Let's steal all the money. Mm. And in fact, the best host-based intrusion detection you can probably get is an unsecured Bitcoin wallet. Because <laughs> the thief comes along, steals the Bitcoin, and you found out that you got compromised. And this isn't a joke. This happened to us. So... As researchers, we were investigating all the, the black markets and stuff like that. So we had a couple thousand dollars in, at the time in Bitcoin. 
One of the other things that we were investigating is Malcode, and we're expecting this to happen. So we created a small Bitcoin wallet that we put on a bunch of machines that we just kept deliberately reinfecting with stuff <laughs> and set up a little program to watch for when that Bitcoin got stolen. And lo and behold, after a month, that Bitcoin got stolen. Unfortunately, it didn't get stolen because of one of our compromised mach or our machines that we we're letting get compromised. It got stolen because the uh, student who had set up that wallet still had a copy on his Dropbox account, <laughs> and his Dropbox account got compromised, and the Bitcoin wallets stored on his Dropbox account got stolen. So you got to air gap your Bitcoin wallet is basically what you're saying. <laughs> yes, you have to use a hardware wallet or something like that, a separate hardware device. So people have talked about. Bitcoin being the internet of money. So let me get this straight. The internet of money is something that you actually cannot keep safely on an internet connected computer. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people don't realize that either when they're, <laughs> when they're dabbling in Bitcoin. So, yeah. So this is what, one of the reasons why I really, 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 really say avoid Bitcoin because uh, a group of computer security researchers cannot store their Bitcoin safely. <laughs> if yeah. we can't store our Bitcoin safely, nobody can. So is there anything that we can glean from all of this blockchain and cryptocurrency stuff? Is there anything we can carry forward from this for the future that that is salvageable, that, that, that might make for some really interesting positive developments going forward, forward. And as an average person, you know, who's never going to dabble in, in Bitcoin futures or whatever, what does it mean to me? What is other than just stay away from Bitcoin? Is there, you know, for, as an average user out there, is there any advice around this sort of thing, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in general that we could take going forward? Okay. First of all, avoid 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 i've only touched some of the strange social stories that are involved number two it is good for mining gold comedy gold <laughs> the stories from the bitcoin world are absolutely hilarious like i didn't even get to the saga of pirate at 40 which was a single ponzi scheme occupying 10 percent of bitcoin at the time there's so many entertaining stories that it is particularly fun to watch. And three, with luck, it will teach a whole bunch of libertarians that regulations exist for a reason. <laughs> uh, oh, that would be an interesting outcome for sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for going through this. It was very entertaining and very insightful. It's, there's a lot of things I learned today, and hopefully the audience did too. Um, if nothing else, stay away from Bitcoin and just watch from afar and laugh. Watch from afar and laugh. Uh, warm up the popcorn machine. <laughs> and in fact, this is the third major Bitcoin bubble. There was a first one at $10. Actually, no, I think it's the fourth. Second at 100 we had a $3,000 bubble, and now we have this bubble. Um, it seems to correspond very strongly with press interest. And oh boy, is there popcorn futures in, in store. <laughs> yep. 
Well, <laughs> thank you again very much for coming. That was very good. Uh, thanks for coming back. And hopefully we'll talk to you again in the future. I'm sure we'll have plenty more to talk about. There's no shortage of, uh, of issues to discuss around cybersecurity. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right. And then it's going to do it. Thanks. Uh, thanks for again for coming on. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, the, that world is so insane. <laughs> it I've really been, is. I've been exposed to it since 2012, 2013. And it's just wacky. <laughs> um, and the wackiness hasn't gone away. That's the thing that um, it's remarkable how many people keep getting into this stuff without knowing the history. Oh, sure. Well, it's a, you know, it's a hot investment thing. People see the price going up and they just want to get in on that. It's speculation, not investment. <laughs> well, investment yes, for sure. means there has to be something that is usable in and of itself. Speculation means it's based entirely on the price that somebody else will pay for it. Yeah, for sure. Well, there's going to be a hell of a documentary on this someday. <laughs> um, probably showing it, you know, the rise and fall of Bitcoin. I, I th the whole blockchain thing is interesting, though, too. I think there's got to be some interesting uh, – I've heard some uh, interesting stuff going on with that where it's not anonymous, but, uh, you know, some security stuff, keeping track of assets. Well, it's just a hash chain. Right. That if I want a hash chain where I have identified trust, it's cheap. So let's say I want to have 10 entities that I trust, that I'm willing to trust, six out of 10. Each one of them keeps their own hash chain, and it's easy to check. And each one of them can run their hash chain on a Raspberry Pi. And since Bitcoin really is controlled by a cabal of less than 10 miners, I actually end up having equal trust properties to Bitcoin on something that runs on a total of 50 watts of computing. <laughs> Gotta love the Raspberry Pis. We use them all the time at work. They're the awesome little boxes. I mean, there's a ton of them like it, but for whatever reason, Raspberry Pi really just took off. And well, it's um, that it's cheap. They've kept enhancing it. Um, the the quad core broadcom on the Pi C is really nice. Um, it balances network. So, like, yeah, gig would be nicer, but in that form factor, you have real hard problem pushing more than a hundred megabit anyway. Mm -hmm. um, once you start talking a real service and the pies are great. I love they them. They are. They're, I mean, there's been a whole bunch of other ones. I, I thought Arduino was going to take off and then uh, BeagleBone. There's, there's, all, there's a ton of them out there, but the thing is, is none of them. Uh, Raspberry Pi was the first one to have enough compute that Arduino just has shit for compute. <laughs> um, same with BeagleBone. Um, and also too expensive, but the either too expensive or not enough commute or both. And the Raspberry Pi has enough compute, enough memory, enough IO bandwidth, and a good computing environment. Um, the one that I think will be interesting going forward, have you looked at the Xilinx uh, Zinc processors? No, I haven't. Oh, they're cool. So they're a bit more expensive. Basically, a Raspberry Pi equivalent would be $150, hmm. $200. But take a Raspberry Pi. Instead of having a quad-core processor, have a dual-core processor and a pretty good-sized FPGA. 
so that you can do like real time stereo vision. Hmm. Well, that's yeah. Well, yeah. All these things, all these things are awesome. I talk. I've got a little uh, continuing ed class I teach at Duke, and I, you know, I always blow their minds when I bring out. You know, if you want to get, you know, tinfoil hatty, you know, get yourself a little Raspberry Pi, you know, and do all your, you know, do all your weird stuff on that, and then and I show them a Raspberry Pi like thirty five bucks. <laughs> you know, yep. it's just amazing. I love the Pi Zero too. That was a really cool innovation, I think too. I wanted that Pi Zero magazine, the Magpie. I would, you know, I figured that would be an co- instant collector's item, but I could not get a hold of one. Yeah, because they sold out so quickly. Yeah. The thing I like about the Pi Zero actually is the camera connector. So I've got a project that I'm working on where I am doing wanting to do stereo vision on an FPGA cheaply, and so for camera, I'm just going to use two Raspberry Pi Zero camera connectors. So that'll give me uh, 30 bucks for stereo vision for the input. Awesome. That's a great time to be alive. <laughs> yep. Really cool. All right. I'm not going to keep you, but thank you so much. And I'm sure I'll reach out again some of the future. I'll let you know when this goes live. Uh, I'm guessing a couple weeks or so. Uh, cool. It'll go up. Thank you so much. Take care. And have a good uh, rest of your weekend. Bye. Bye. I want to thank Nick Weaver one more time for coming back to the show and telling us everything we need to know about Bitcoin. Man, I, I know that was kind of crazy. I know that was some really technical stuff. So I hope you hung hung in there and listened to everything he had to say and listened particularly to some of the advice he had, the advice he had for uh, most people out there. And Bitcoin and things like Bitcoin, uh, from a technical standpoint, they're fascinating. And they've got some really interesting aspects, uh, you know, but as always, the devil's in the details and usually where these really cool technical ideas, you know, meet real life and people out there trying to make money, things get really squirrely really fast, which I think is the upshot of uh, what we're trying to tell you here. So it's interesting to watch. Uh, again, pop that popcorn and and uh, just keep your eye on the news and watch as this stuff just comes and goes and stay the heck away from it because it's it's just nuts. And I've got some more great interviews lined up uh, in the months ahead, so be sure to tune in for those. And, of course, we've got the regular weekly podcast will be coming up, should be arriving uh, on Monday. Stay tuned for that. We'll have our usual news of the week. I'll tell you what you need to know and what you can do about it, and as always, the tip of the week to go with that. So until then, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Take care, everybody.